Welcome to another superb episode of How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about the different, interesting, and winding paths in medicine. Today, we are so very, very lucky to be having coffee, cue slurping noises, having coffee with a very, very special guest who is now choking on his coffee. So <laughs> our special guest is the king of joints, but not that kind of joint. <laughs> the lord of the room, as in R-H-E-U-M, and the baron of arthritis, multiple kinds. I'm so pleased to welcome on the show, Dr. Alan, welcome. Look, Lily, it's a delight to be here. I'm really happy to get a chance to talk about rheumatology. Excellent. So let's start off by asking, what is rheumatology? Well, it's a funny old term, isn't it, rheumatology? Mm. Cardiology is obviously the heart, cardiac. But rheumatology is all the connective tissues of the body. So we get patients who've got diseases of the muscles, the joints, the ligaments, the arteries, kind of all the connective structures of the body. So it's a wonderful variety. That's what mm. I like about it. Yeah. And do you need a good grasp of anatomy for that? You do. I can't claim you have the same grasp, say, as an orthopaedic surgeon or physiotherapist who need kind of minutia. Mm. We're about sort of how it all fits together as a function. So a physio would know every conceivable tendon of the shoulder. Mm. We would know how the rotator cuff works and how to balance it. So, but you, you have to be pretty good at anatomy. Yeah. yeah, I remember the first time after studying anatomy when I first dismantled a, a barbecued chicken and it was just amazing to see the parallels between, you know, all the little joints and all the little uh, bones and how similar they were to people. But I assume there's more to it than just bones and joints. So what kind of diseases would you see in rheumatology? Well, in my part of Sydney, I suppose rheumatoid arthritis, gout and lupus would be our big three. Mm. Rheumatoid arthritis, it's about 1% of the population gets it. And it's one of the areas where our treatment has improved enormously. Gout's a disease of, you know, Western civilization. So if I lived in a vegetarian country, I'd have no gout. But here in Sydney, tons of it. Mm. And because the part of Sydney I work in, lots and lots of Chinese people, probably lupus is a, well, lupus is a very common disease. And half my patients are young Chinese women mm. with lupus. Okay, but there are also exotic things aside from those. I remember chatting to you once about familial Mediterranean fever. What are the, what are the rarer things that you can also see? Well, uh, today, for instance, a little bit later, I'm seeing a man who's got a disease called IgG4 aortitis. Oh. <laughs> so it's, uh, he feels just vaguely unwell when he has CT scans. He's got a massive inflammatory tissue wrapped around his lower aorta. Wow. Um, and when you biopsy that, it's rich in plasma cells that make IgG4. This disease not only didn't exist when I graduated, <laughs> it didn't exist you know, when I was a registrar. Mm. We didn't know it existed until about five years ago. And now we think it's not so rare. It affects wow. you know, parotid glands, uh, lymph nodes, blood vessels. So it's, um, and, and wonderfully, we have a treatment for it. So I like that. I mean, the, you mentioned familial Mediterranean fever. Mm. Uh, all of the periodic fever syndromes. The first time you or your child gets a fever, you think, well, it must be an infection. Mm. But there are all these diseases that cause fever that aren't infections. So we normally get those, first you go to see an infectious disease doctor, now after a while he realises, oh, it isn't an infection, it's one of those funny things. Mm. So then we, we see them after that. And they're, they're really fascinating, because they're partly genetic, but we're learning that your genes don't explain everything. 
So you might be carrying the gene for familial Mediterranean fever, but you don't get it. Hmm. We know that Turkish people in Turkey get a lot of familial Mediterranean fever. Turkish people who migrate to Germany, they're still ethnically Turks, but the amount of FMF they get is about one-tenth. So there's an environmental factor. Yeah. So there's even apparently simple diseases, there'll be complexity. Okay. Hmm. Wow. So it sounds like there's quite a lot of variety from being the land of lupus to the land of, of, of rarer and stranger and interesting things. All of, all of it will be interesting, but, you know, all sorts of different things. So I have to say the field of rheumatology has done very well in being very humble and not naming lots of diseases after people. Although <laughs> I suppose Sjogren's disease is mm-hmm. uh, a, a different uh, matter. Mm-hmm. but. It's, it's amazing how descriptive they really are. So how did you go from being a medical student to, to where you are now, especially with, with strange new diseases that didn't exist back in that time? Look, it's, it's interesting. It's, choosing your career is serendipitous, isn't mm. it? You know, it really is. Uh, I think I, I met a few patients with lupus and I was fascinated by this concept of autoimmunity. So back then, you know, this is some years ago, um, but there was still the excitement that McFarlane Burnett, who was an Australian, mm. had, had won the Nobel Prize for clonal selection theory. So it was, Australia has always been good at autoimmunity. So when I was a fourth year student, already kind of interested in that, I found I had an opportunity to leave Queensland and work at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And there was a unit there, the clinical research unit, it was originally founded by Burnett himself. So I met, you know, all these people with this remarkable range of autoimmune illnesses. There were two people with ankylosing spondylitis in the ward. There was a person with sclerosing cholangitis. So it wasn't organ-specific, it was mechanism-specific. So I, I was just in love with it from that moment. I will say, for many years, while I always liked seeing people with rheumatoid, it could be a bit dispiriting, because sometimes we'd use our best drugs and nothing would happen. The poor person would get progressively more disabled. Mm-hmm. And then, like about, what is it, 15 years ago, the, the, the biological revolution started. So now we have, I think, 10 biological drugs for rheumatoid. So instead of a quarter of our patients being disabled, maybe it's one in 30. You know? oh, the fine. treatment is so good yeah. now. Okay, so it sounds like rheumatology is more about preventing the slow decline, is that correct? Or is there a lot of life-threatening stuff? Uh, definitely this, this, the, the first. Um, many of our diseases don't kill people. Mm. They would gradually take away your independence and your power mm. and your strength. So we, we, we change that trajectory. So instead of being disabled in five years, in five years they're well. They're still working, they're mm. still raising their families and things. The, the life-threatening ones are if it involves other organs. So no one's going to die of their arthritis unless it's the lantoaccipital mm. joint. Um, so some of our lupus patients get, say, pulmonary hemorrhage, or people who've got granulomatosis, they'll, they'll get severe renal involvement. So we work with, closely with our colleagues in all the other specialties, um, and they are, you know, it, it is delightful to get those desperately sick people and save them. You know, it, that's lots of fun. Or a young Chinese girl who's got bad lupus, and she's only 18, mm. and she can see oh gosh, my life's going to be so different. Maybe I can't have children, maybe I can't work, maybe I've got this awful rash. And then after a couple of years of treatment, she's well, she's at university, she's starting to be a lawyer. Mm. You know, we've told her, of course, have as many children as you like. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, um, that's tremendously gratifying. 
Yeah, and it's quite interesting to think, let's say centuries ago, let's say medieval times mm. when people lived to something like 30 years mm. old, that rheumatology might have not have featured at all because they just didn't live long enough to have these problems. Yes. But now, I guess, as we have the ageing population, as they say, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and more of a thing. Yes, I mean, ageing imposes all kinds of problems. There's the ordinary you know, degenerative changes mm. that we all get. Like everybody gets disc degeneration, everyone gets their rotator cuffs injured. Mm. And trying not to, trying to deal with, we don't have magic drugs for that, cause that's <laughs> the aging process. But what we've learned is that simple things, you know, exercise, yeah. muscle strengthening, keeping your weight good, they make a huge difference. And changing people's perception. So an older person who had sore knees years ago was told to, best if you rest mm. and then when it's terrible do a knee replacement then look after your knee we don't do any of that now we say look sure you might need a knee replacement in five years but right now you have to walk we have to build up your quadriceps muscles you have to lose weight you have to stop smoking and all those things will increase your quality of life mm. so a 65 year old person now is a strong healthy working person yeah. they're not an old person anymore yeah, they're a middle-aged man wearing lycra. Or, yes. You know, yes. <laughs> it's different from how it used to be. <laughs> yes. oh, it's, uh, it is. It is. So, and that's without magic. Like the drugs for rheumatoid, they're like magic, and mm. they they're switch off tumor necrosis factor. Whereas quadriceps exercises and losing weight sounds trivial, but it can be transforming. Mm. My, my old boss John Edmonds used to say what he liked about rheumatology was that there was always something you could do for every patient you saw. Mm. Something. You know, it might only be exercise or advice about ha activities of daily living, but there's always something. And he, he was right. Yeah. I suppose that's different from, say, neurology, where you can isolate the lesion and then sort of do nothing about it. At least in rheumatology, you can try and figure out what it is and then give at least a little advice. You know, let's yes. say with neurology, um, exercise won't help your brain lesion or no. anything. No, look, it's true. I mean, our neurology colleagues, that's a tough specialty. You know, the, there's wonderful academic delight in mm. detecting the uncommon, you know, strange parano syndrome or something. But then many of them you can't do much. Mm. Of course, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Like I really encourage you, whoever's listening to the podcast, those specialties are good for people who, who, can, who are both clever and can make diagnoses, but who can support people. Mm. You know, who can say, yes, you've got Parkinson's, I, I can help a bit, but these things will happen. But there are other things we can do to make your life worthwhile. It, we're, but we're luckier than that. We're luckier. <laughs> All right. So who does rheumatology suit? Well, uh, I think everybody. I mean, I'm looking at my colleagues, my senior colleagues. Some are interested in the common diseases, osteoarthritis. Mm. You know, why is it common? What can we do to slow that thing? That's their big interest. I'm interested in the immune system, and in fact, it's, it's a, a secret I've kept for a long time. I only ever actually did one single year of rheumatology training. I, I, did, I did the immunology program, um, which overlapped a lot. Uh. And then when I applied for a job in rheumatology, I said, look, I'll pick it up as I go along. <laughs> it's worked. Yeah, we, yes, because we don't encourage that anymore. Um, so I like the immunology side. Uh, other people like, for instance, the crystals, the gout and mm. pseudogout. Mm. Um, Gout being the disease for which we have the best treatment, if you can get people to take it. You know, that's the challenge. You know, for some reason or other, gout, gout is very badly managed, even though mm. we've got a cure for it. 
So my registrar last year is currently in New Zealand. They get the worst gout you know, of everybody. So he's, he wants to improve his ability to talk to people, to manage them, to encourage them in their own lifestyle so he can come back to Sydney and help a lot of our gout patients. So you can pick anything you like. Um, uh, I mean, the other, of course, we, we also take into some extent osteoporosis. We share that with the endocrinologists. A lot of people are interested in the pharmacology behind our disease. And a lot of people now are interested also in cost analysis. Drugs for rheumatoid now can cost $15,000 a year. And we have to make sure that it's money well spent. Mm. So we need some young doctors who both speak the language of medicine and molecular biology and also finance. Yeah. So they can talk about, you know, disease quality, life-adjusted years. To, so that's, it's a huge range, huge. And just on that note about the $15,000 a year, that's mm. a, a big drop down from what it used to be, isn't it? They used oh, to be that, like a quarter of a million or more. Oh, yeah, look, many of these drugs are hugely, I mean, there, there are costs of once competition comes in, when multiple mm. companies make the same drug. Yeah. I think we're moving a little bit away from the biologicals back to tablets, like the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Right. Kinase inhibitors are, are expensive, but they're not as expensive as monoclonal antibodies. So they, they'll be a big break, that'll reduce the cost. Um, and, you know, generics always come along. So the cost will come down. We have to acknowledge, though, of course, gee, Australia's lucky. If I were a rheumatologist um, in, say, Fiji, mm. uh, I, I don't imagine I could ever prescribe a biological. You know, so people would use a lot more prednisone. There'd be a lot more steroid side right. effects. Right. So, like many things, Australia's so lucky to have <clears throat> Medicare and, you know, the wealth of our country. And coffee that we can slurp. Oh, yeah. Coffee slurping. The best country in the world for <laughs> coffee, yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Let's say personality-wise, what kind of people would rheumatology suit? Patient oh, people, active people? Yeah, look, I, I think you have to be patient. Mm. Um, we Many of our patients, for, for instance, don't have good English skills. Mm. So, but getting the history, like everything in medicine, is so important. Mm. We don't we don't have the equivalent of a coronary angiogram. A, a non-English speaking person with chest pain, well, you just you know, do a coronary angiogram. Um, but we have to tease out the story. Even something that's similar, you know, to a highly educated English-speaking person, getting across the idea of vasospasm, Raynaud's, is simple. Mm. But when you're trying to get that history from someone who doesn't speak English, and try to get across the idea that we're not just talking about cold hands, you know, we want Raynaud's. So getting all that detail is very hard. Skin rashes are very hard, so rheumatologists have to be good at skin. Because, mm. I mean, that may be the single key feature, like a rash, like the heliotrope rash or Gottron's rash. If you miss that, you know, you miss the whole diagnosis. So it's got, you've got to be patient. You, you've got to realise you may not get the diagnosis first step. Um, and then you, everyone has to read up. I mean, I read four or five journals every week. Um, if, I, if there's a patient that I don't know much about, uh, I'll, I'll read up on it. So this man with uh, IgG4 involvement with his aorta, um, I've only probably had three or four patients like that ever. So I'm not gonna trust my memory to be right. So uh, last night I downloaded two papers about it. So when I see him today, you know, I'll, I'll be better informed. Mm, okay. and, and that's also adult learning, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You can't learn in isolation. You've got to build it around a patient. So, yeah, I think you have patient people um, and people who take the history. Mm. Okay. Yeah, sounds like the kind of people you want to pay attention to, you know, the things that are going on. So it yeah. uh, sounds like the kind of people you would trust to manage your rheumatological conditions. Yeah, we, we like people. So, you know, getting used to what normal the normal is. Mm. Yeah. So we encourage all our trainees, even if the person's only got, you know, say gout in their foot, mm. 
but they do a very thorough examination of the hands and, and learn what's the normal range of swollen joints, different sort of thicknesses that are a young woman with soft skin, an old guy that's worked out in the sun for years, mm. where amongst all that would we diagnose scleroderma? You know, because to, to diagnose scleroderma, you've got to know what's the range of normal skin thickening. So it's all learning. Yeah, so you have to know normal to know pathological. Mm. So you have something to compare to. Just like you have to know bad coffee to know good coffee, yes. things like that. <laughs> you certainly do. All right, now you mentioned that you may not have, let's say, coronary angiograms as things you do, but I'm not sure if you remember a very long time ago, the first time we met was at a workshop for junior doctors where you used my knee uh, as an example to draw all over and, and uh, demonstrate joint aspiration. So there are some things that rheumatologists do. What's the extent of uh, procedures that you might do? Oh. So the, um, we often would drain fluid from a knee. It's the ultimate examination. Mm. So the joints that are easy to get into are knees, shoulders, ankles, wrists. So we'd often drain those. Difficult joints like a hip, too high risk just to try it blind. So we would ask a radiologist to do that. Steroid injections into those. We sometimes do skin biopsies. We prefer a dermatologist <laughs> to do the skin biopsy. But if one's not available, yep. we, we want that, we do that. We can measure tear production using a little you know, Sherman's test. Mm. Um, I don't do that. Uh, I believe a lot of things in medicine are historical you know, and, and they, they're hard to kill like, like a zombie. <laughs> and the idea of measuring the amount of liquid an eye makes strikes mm. me as you know, tremendously unreliable and of historical interest only. Because you and I might both have true fair income Sjogren syndrome. Mm. You might make tons of tears, I may not. Or I might no, may not make tears just because I'm old and I've been exposed to too much dry life. You've got nothing to cry about. Nothing to cry about. Look, do you know, I really appreciate how, lucky, how fortunate I've been in life. It's been lucky, you know, it's all it is. So, which just means when you see someone who hasn't been lucky, they got rheumatoid arthritis when they were a child, mm. they got dermatomyositis when they were in their 20s, they got Sjogren's, got a lymphoma in their 60s, you know, it makes you realise how lucky you've been. Yeah. And, yeah, and then how you could got to try and bring you know as much good to that person as you can who hasn't been lucky. Yeah, because it's not just about quantity of life; it is about the quality of life, enjoying it while you're here. Oh yes, so much. Yeah. I mean, there, I mentioned earlier about pregnancy because in the on you know the internet, there's a lot of stuff about avoiding pregnancy if you've got say lupus and rheumatoid. Mm. We we grapple with that all the time, encouraging people to live a full life. So uh, jogging, cycling, pregnancy, um, you know, long distance walking, we say to people, the benefits of that far outweigh the downside. Um, and when you meet a woman who's now, say, 50, <clears throat> she was told when she was 20 that she's got lupus and she shouldn't have children, and we think, oh dear, that was all wrong, you know? Um, not, not, not that you want to look back and regret things you can't change, mm -hmm. But we reminds us not to do that ever again. Yeah, so just change it um, in the future. That's mm. that's a positive attitude. Mm. Yeah, going back to the tear ducts thing, it just occurs to me that there's probably a world record for everything, and I just wonder <laughs> what the world record is for the most amount of tears produced. Oh, it, it, phenomenal. Yes. It, it is. It is interesting, isn't it? The the um, if if we accidentally touch the eye while inserting the paper, mm. we get reflex tearing. Oh. The the, the Schirmer paper is about two centimetres long, and you, you can soak that in a few seconds. You know, oh. for that sort of tearing. We we try to just gently use it. Um, I, I, but as I say, I rarely do it because mm. in Australia, air conditioning, ageing, sunlight, everybody gets dry eyes as they get older. Mm. So it's a, more a matter of incorporating the symptom of dryness 
with the blood tests yeah. and, and knowing how to interpret them. That's the other thing. A lot of our stuff's about teaching people how to interpret blood tests. And I guess rheumatologists and endocrinologists are probably the two specialties who get best at blood tests. Endocrine because it's all about feedback loops. Mm. Us because investigating the immune system is complicated. Like you might have an anti-nuclear antibody and there's nothing wrong with you. I may have a low level anti-nuclear antibody and I've got some serious disease. You know, we have to know how to interpret it, what's the normal range, how does it change as you get older, what drugs affect it, and how do you analyse an ANA? Like, who do you do the DNA, ENA, anchor tests on? Mm. So that's a big part of our training program, how, how not to misuse tests. Okay, I can certainly see a lot of people might really enjoy that because it gives a level of quantitation, you know, in some areas of medicine, it's, it's a little bit more of an art form and there's no solid cutoff. Mm. And in a sense, it sounds like there's, you know, reasonable cutoffs in rheumatology to be interpreted with caution in the whole context. But you can still look at these actual tests and look at numbers and have a little bit of data. Oh, look, absolutely. Um, I mean, we, we tell the trainees that the history is the most important thing. Mm. So probably, you know, we've got our... We've got 70% of our diagnoses. Then we're interested in the physical examination, and, th and that's, that's everything from the thickness of the fingers to the tiny little capillaries in your cuticles to whether there's any ulceration in the mouth. You know, all, we, we, we've got to look at everything. Lots of detail. A lot of detail. Yeah. And, and then the blood tests, which probably the most common mistake in our blood tests is, is over-interpretation of them, mm. not realising what's the range of normal. Or, or getting a result from a laboratory that's clearly wrong, that doesn't match the history or the physical examination, and putting too much weight on a blood test. Right. We, we tell our trainees, the, the blood test and the history, it has to match. If not, something's wrong. Either you didn't get the history right, or the blood test is wrong, or there's something you know, completely missed, something that hasn't, doesn't fit. So it's the whole gestalt that we want. Mm. And does it ever make you a little bit nervous? Because, you know, there's no, let's say, lie detector or like machine afterwards that tells you, yes, you got this right, you got this wrong. Do you ever get a little bit nervous thinking, you know, do I, am I sure this is right or? Yes, oh, absolutely. I think once you get overconfident, it's probably time to give it away. <laughs> um, the people that I, say I saw someone, I discharged them after the first visit, mm. I'm always a bit nervous. I think, Gina, was I overconfident then? Did I send them away when I said that their ANA is of no significance? Was I right? Should I, you know? But you have to balance all those things. Yeah. We are great believers in, in coming together. Most rheumatologists meet with their colleagues once a week, once a fortnight, once a month at a minimum. We, we would encourage the trainees to always join up with people at least once a month and present their cases. And you might think, gee, I did a good job with that one. And when you're presenting it to colleagues, you can see their faces looking a bit odd. And they'll say, gee, Alan, I think that was a good idea. You know, what about that? Had you, had you thought about Sjogren's? You know, could they have scleroderma? That rash, that looks like myositis to me. You know, did you check their CK? So quite often, after one of those meetings, I go back and I get out the file and I read it again. Mm. And I might say to the patient, maybe you should come back in two months just for a checkup. Yeah. So I love those meetings. They're an important part of uh, ongoing education. Mm. So a little bit of a ego check or possibly reassurance if you weren't sure and if they support you. So that's excellent as well. And yeah, it is quite interesting, this mix of having firm data, but also artful interpretation. So a little bit of both. Oh, oh yes, yeah. yes. And, and it also, once you come to the diagnosis, then what's going to happen might vary. You and I might both have scleroderma. Mm. I might think, well, my scleroderma probably is not going to worry me for 20 years. Your scleroderma might be life-threatening. So that's the other thing. There's the diagnosis, mm. and then how severe is it? 
what organs does it affect? What sort of antibodies have you got? Because that gives me a bit of an idea of predicting the future. So no two patients with lupus would be the same. They'd be on slightly different treatments because it's tailored for each special person. And each person is special. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's so true. Every patient that comes in, some of my patients that I've done the least for, kind of the most grateful because they know I I did my best. I tried uh, and their disease just got worse. And uh, sometimes I say to them, would you like to see another doctor? Um, I mean, I really recommend it. They say, look, Dr. Serge, you did your best. You know, I'm happy just to, you know, we're doing, I'm not going to be any better than anyone else. Um, and sometimes they, they're good. They look like what you might call in the old days a cripple. You know, their fingers are all twisted <laughs> and bent. But they, they, they can crochet, they, they're well-dressed, they're, you know, they, they're tidy, mm. they, they write beautifully, they, they've adapted. Yeah. Despite what looks like awful deformities, they, they're making a good life. Yeah, people can be very amazing, and I assume there's a big variety in their attitudes as well. So you probably get some very positive people like mm-hmm. that who have made the best of it. And do you also get people on the other end, like yes. quite negative? So yes, you do. How do you, oh, you know, gee, sort through all this? Gee, that's a good point. I mean, I'm not good at it. Just yesterday, I was reading a review written by a guy who specialised in functional neurology, mm. trying to teach us how do you manage people who, for instance, are having pseudo seizures, now called uh, dissociative seizures. And we have a similar thing in rheumatology, people who feel widespread pain, mm. but in whom we find nothing to explain it. How do, we, how do we help those people to be confident they haven't got any awful disease and to cope with pain that they feel, it's real, you know, they're feeling pain. We can't say they don't have pain. All we can say is we don't think there's a bad reason for it. So pain management is a big part of rheumatology and probably the part we do the least, least well. Uh, everyone's aware of the great, you know, morphine opioid crisis in the United States and in Australia, of which uh, the companies will get the blame, but really the doctors did it. You and I, we're the ones who prescribed all those opioids. Um, we thought that was a solution for chronic pain and rheumatology, and now we know not only was it not a solution, it made it worse. So we're we're trying to relearn how to manage chronic pain without opioids. And how to how to get people to look beyond that negativeness. Mm. Some people do it. You know, you see people who come back, say six months later, and they say, "Oh, I've still got that pain, but I know I don't have rheumatoid arthritis. I know I don't have osteoporosis. I've joined a gym. I swim. Uh, I've still got the pain, but but I don't I don't want to take any drugs. I don't want any side effects. So those people have learned how to live with it. And other folks, I understand in the United States, fibromyalgia is one of the commonest causes for the disability pension. Here in Australia, we would think that was a terrible idea because, you know, you've labelled a person as disabled. Um, so, you know, they're just never going to get better. Mm. So, but I have to say, we're better, at micro, we're better at molecular biology than we are at psychology. You know? Right. Well, so how much does someone's attitude play into it? Like, let's say it was a manageable disease physically, giving them all the right medications, but mm. they just had a negative attitude. Would that impair their recovery? Is- <gasps> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think the, the best example that's happened many years ago, because ne- now we've got a cure for ankylosing spondylitis. Mm. Instead of a person getting a rigid spine, now we can relieve the pain. Before those great treatments, there was a trial where they encouraged people to be wrapped up in a plaster. The idea was plaster their whole body, maintain their good posture. Some people refused to do it. They said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to wear a plaster. I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to exercise. And when the trial was over, the people who'd followed the doctor's orders, they were rigid, couldn't move. And, you know, okay, they're in a good position. 
they lost all mobility. The people who ignored the doctors and said, no, I'm going to exercise, they were much better off because they had a different attitude. Yeah. You know, they weren't passive. They weren't about, what can the doctor do for me? They were about, gee, doctor doesn't have a cure. I've got to, I've got to exercise. Every day I've got to go to the gym. I've got to keep flexibility as much as I can. So we see that all the time. The people who do the best are lucky in that optimism. Um, I mean, if you're born optimistic, that's another just luck, isn't it? Like, you know, I don't think people want to be pessimistic. Mm. Something happens that gives them a sense of pessimism. Yeah. Um, and how to get them out of that, we try, but I don't think we're very good at it. Um, it's true in cardiology as well, of course. Like, if you were an optimist and you got a bit of angina after walking 200 metres, well, every day you'd walk 200 metres, 200, you know, you'd push it and you'd say, well, I can do a lot. Whereas if you're a pessimist, you think, oh, my life's ruined. You know, all I ever wanted to do was walk 400 metres. You know, now I can't. <laughs> yeah. So in our business, we, we tell people exercise is really important, a positive attitude. It won't cure their disease, but whatever disability they get, they'll cope with it so much better. Yeah, and thoughts lead to different behaviours, don't they? Yeah. And I guess whatever you think about your life is your life. You know, if, if you feel negative, then your life will be negative. If you're happy, your life will be happy. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of my happiest patients you know, is the woman who I think I've done the least good for. But she's just, I think she was born happy. Mm, you know, she, yeah. I used to see her with her husband. She was an optimistic wife. He got sick, she looked after him, and he died. And she, now she looks after grandchildren. She's just a optimistic, happy woman. With rheumatoid, for which I've done very little, unfortunately. <laughs> but still done something? That's something. still good, yeah. Mm. And I think they're claiming now that everyone has a happiness set point, you know, a point that you're naturally, kind of like a, like a weight set point, mm. you know, you'll na naturally gravitate to a certain number of kilos and you can do your best to try and get away from it, but your body sort of tries mm. to go back. So that's according to that new field of positive psychology and that sort mm. of stuff. So, I, Look, I, I didn't know that. The, the, I mean, we always have this hope that we could change people's... Mm. Sounds like you're saying there's only a, there's a maximum amount of happiness we can get. It'll just person for some for some people it might take more effort. I suppose yeah. you know you you start off with a baseline mm. and if you don't do any work you'll naturally gravitate to that baseline. Is the sort okay. of theory. Mm. But since you're reading journal articles regularly, one day you'll be able to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I love this article on functional neurology. It, it was so detailed. It just went through, you know, how do I tell a person they've got they don't have epileptic seizures? They've got mm. dissociative seizures. How do I cope with their inevitable questions? What's the letter I send to their GP? And, and I also send a letter to them, spelling it out. No, no blaming, no, no, nothing about malingering or anything. You know, just trying to make people understand what's happened to them. Mm. And I'll take along, I'll take away a few lessons from that for my own patients. Yeah, all right. And I, I guess the the words we use are then are quite important. For example, you said you were trying to avoid using the word malingering oh, yes. and avoid, you know, disability and oh, yes, normal, yeah. that sort of thing. Oh, it's thing. so true. I mean, it's, they've shown it best in chronic back pain, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, we can if you use a word like burst um, disc or, or uh, I mean, like even sometimes bulge will upset, but certainly we never say burst, you know, and we, and we never say, look at an x-ray and say, God, you've got a horrible back. <laughs> yeah. Now, we talk about age-related changes, yeah. um, bulges, extrusions, words that sort of normalise what's on there. Because we know that, well, the best example was, it was about high blood pressure. People are completely asymptomatic from high blood pressure, mm -hmm. but once you diagnose high blood pressure and put them on a tablet for their high blood pressure, their, their sick leave and their quality of life declines. Right. Because now they think, I've got a disease, I've got high blood pressure which is entirely psychological. You know, we gave you that disease. So with chronic back pain, if we tell people, 
look, I'm sure you've got wearing change in your back, probably the same as your, your wife's got. Um, but but if you worry about it and restrict yourself, yeah. it'll just become more disabling. So we're, we're, we we try to change the language we use, the language the radiologists use, the language the physios use, to get away from words that, that have bad connotations. Yeah, because burst only works well in juices and lollies. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's right. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, and I guess a lot of people will have osteoarthritic changes on x-rays, but it doesn't mean they have symptoms. So there is that disparity mm. between having radiological evidence mm. of change and actually being you know, oh. impaired. Yeah, well, we, yeah. Know, we know the x-rays of the knee have very little correlation with the amount of pain. Mm. Sure, if, you, you know, if you're bone on bone, most of you'll have pain. <laughs> but there'll be people who've got virtually no cartilage left and they're running. And people have got trivial amounts of cartilage loss and they're in a lot of pain. So we, we, which is one reason we, we try not to x-ray people unnecessarily. Because mm, yeah. we, we know if you x-ray a person with a back pain and it shows some degenerative changes, people can fix on that. And and then, and or their doctor, their doctor might give them the bad message. Oh, gee, your back looks bad. It just makes them worse. Yeah, now, so, just before we start talking mm-hmm. about training and all that other exciting mm-hmm. stuff, I do have a question about this topic of osteoarthritis. Let's say hypothetically people live to a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Would everybody inevitably get osteoarthritis? Well, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I mean, the osteoarthritis uh, sort of experts don't like the idea of it being an aging process. Mm. And Australia's got some of the world's best osteoarthritis experts. Having said that, um, my my view as a non-expert in the area is that is that it's part of the ageing process. Look, we, we never see, you know, if you do an arthroscopy on an older person, their cartilage clearly doesn't look like a younger person's mm-hmm. cartilage. And every other part of our body is ageing. Our skin's getting thinner, our blood vessels are getting thicker, neurons are being lost. It would be inconceivable that cartilage was the only tissue that didn't. Yeah. So I think, yes, it's, it's age-related. Um, and then you, presumably your occupation and the genes you inherit from your parents determine how quickly your cartilage wears out and whether you get osteophytes and things at the same time. So I think just as we'd all get emphysema if we lived long enough, we'd all get osteoarthritis if we lived long enough, we'd all get disc degeneration in the back <laughs> if we lived long enough. Um, it's normal. Presumably because, you know, we were never meant to live to these ages. Mm. To be, you know, you, a woman would have had her children when she was a teenager, um, had very few periods in her entire life because she, that, you know, she'd be pregnant most of the time, then mm. she'd die. Um, and the men wouldn't, would die <laughs> as well. Yeah. Whereas now uh, we, we, we grapple with postmenopausal issues. Um, we, we grapple with degenerative changes of age, mm. um, all of which are... It's, it's likely it's nice to get the opportunity, isn't it? Of course, to grapple yes. with them. Yeah. Uh, life's no longer sort of short and brutish. It's yeah. long, long and, and painful. No. Oh, well, <laughs> it can you know we all get things, um, but the joy of it yeah. outweighs everything. A little bit yeah. like a negative lottery, a, a little bit like cancer, I suppose. It's just, I mean, theoretically, yes. you could have someone who lived to a thousand, a million years old who didn't get cancer mm-hmm. if they were just lucky. It's just a DNA. You know, probability thing. Yeah, which mean, yeah, it is. It is a random stochastic. Um, yeah. But you know, it's a disease of aging. Yeah. That's why people say that even if we could eradicate cancer from Australia, the average gain in age is quite small, because mostly cancers are diseases of old people. Mm. Um, but the ones we think about, you know, is the young mother with breast cancer or the young child with leukemia. You know, the awful things, but they're rare. You know, they're the uncommon ones. Yeah. And childhood leukaemia has a much better prognosis now. Oh, fortunately. Fortunately. Yeah. Those doctors were so brave, weren't they? You know, the idea that the, the guy that first did bone marrow transplants in children, you know, 19 out of 20 of his first patients died. So 
how how gutsy we have to be to keep on going yeah. in the belief that the next one, the next one I'll save. And, um, yeah. It sounds like you've seen lots of changes in medications and treatments throughout your training. So, so what about for people training now? What can they look forward to? Well, I mean, I think I think you know whole genome sequencing is going to be big. So at the moment, I have many patients for whom I can't quite put a diagnosis on them. They've got some kind of auto-inflammatory condition. So they haven't got familial Mediterranean fever. They've got something. So uh, there are major programs all around the world now sorting those out, new ones described all the time. So as the cost of whole genome sequencing comes down, we'll be able to give diagnosis to most of those people. Then with rheumatoid, at the moment, we've got all these wonderful drugs, but it is random. Now, you come along with rheumatoid, mm. and first I might try an anti-tumor necrosis factor drug. If that didn't work, I might try another one. And if that didn't work, I might block IL-6. If that didn't work, I might block your T cells. That's obviously not very scientific. You know, in a few years, you'll come along with rheumatoid, mm. we'll measure your peripheral blood, maybe you do a bi- synovial biopsy, we'll work out what drives your rheumatoid. And we might find, ah, oh, you know, for you, blocking B cell function is the right way to go. So we'll tailor it to each right. person. That'll be great. Um, scleroderma, we, we need big breakthroughs there. That's one of the diseases that at the moment is a bit of a heart sink thing. You know, it's, it's a tough disease to treat. Um, literally tough. As well. Literally tough. Literally <laughs> tough. Yes. But you know, we'll have a dr- we'll have a drug that stops fibrosis. You mean you know, the one that's now used for interstitial lung disease? It's okay, but there'll be much better ones. Once we once and the interfering with tyrosine kinase is going to it's going to be a big field. Mm. So there'll be lots more, and cartilage growth factors will come. So we'll, so knee replacement surgery will be re- replaced oh, by good. cartilage regrowth. I mean, that's not far away. Yeah. Knee yeah. replacement, replacement surgery. Knee replacement, replacement. <laughs> that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know? Wow. Okay. So lots of things to look forward to. So how do people become part of this fantastic shining specialty? Well, you. Uh, I mean, it, it is difficult, isn't it? Because because it's mostly in our patients, especially when you're a resident, there are lots of patients in the hospital with heart disease, lung disease. You know, so you're allocated to all those terms. Mm. So you might be unlucky, and never get. Rheumatology. Your best hope is that there happens to be someone with rheumatoid, excuse me, or lupus or something in the ward under another doctor, maybe. Mm. And you see that, and the rheumatologist come around, and you think, oh, gee, that's kind of interesting, and you read up about it, and then you hope you can do a rheumatology clinic with those people. So then you you decide, okay, internal medicine is what I want to do. Mm. So you try all those specialties, and which one's rheumatology? You think I really like that. You do your exam, the physician's exam, and then you apply for the rheumatology program. Uh, in Australia, it's run state by state. We try to get a variety of people. Um, we're, we're sort of gender blind. I think more than half our trainees would be female. And maybe they choose it because there, it, it, certainly there's a nurturing part to it, looking after people. It doesn't have too much night call. I mean, we would only come in probably once every three weeks. You know? mm-hmm. Whereas if you're a neurologist, cardiologist, gastroenterologist, Every single time you're on call, you'd have to come in. And what know. would you be called in for? Oh, it would normally be, it, oddly enough, it would more often be, uh, say, fever and rash. Oh, okay. So uh, if, if it was, um, no one would come in for a sore shoulder. Or, you know, that, <laughs> but if, if someone came with fever and rash and they thought, you know, did they have granulomatosis or did they have lupus? Or I think they're getting into such lung disease. Do you think it's dermatomyositis with lung disease? So they're the ones we'd come in to see. Right. So, um, so, it's much, it's, so it's good from that point of view. Uh, you're always when you're on call there's always some new patient so 
you, you there's always on call that's part of the job mm. but in, there the, you, most of your work can be in an office we we very strongly encourage people not to practice by themselves i think the lone practitioner can drift off into dangerous territory unanalyzed so we encourage our trainees to join someone else to have a group of two or three rheumatologists to make sure they had a group where they all chatted together about their patients right. um, to have some link to a hospital so they went to grand rounds and continuing education um, and 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 the other thing of course you can practice it for a long time if you're an orthopedic surgeon you probably need to give it away when you're 60 it's physically hard mm. whereas a rheumatologist is probably only reaching their peak in their late 50s and 60s that's when they've seen enough of the rare stuff and they should work you know well into their 60s or 70 because that's when they've got to try and teach all that stuff to the next generation right right and so what would a typical day be would it be clinic after clinic after clinic or would it be uh, drinking coffee and well, wait, podcast look, interviews yeah, we do like coffee drinking <laughs> we do like coffee drinking um well a typical day so my week like say next week I'll do a ward round on Monday. So today's I uh, can Wednesday. see lots of leave. You've got lots of big plans, I know. <laughs> big plans. But uh, Monday next week, I'll do a ward round in the morning and mm. I'll do a clinic in the afternoon. And I'm looking at the list and I can see people there with lupus. Someone's got, that's an auto-inflammatory disease and that guy's got scleroderma. Right. Then I'll do a clinic on Tuesday morning and then I've got Tuesday afternoon off. What I'll actually do then mm. is, is do some reading about the patients that are coming to hospital um, and, and look, you know, look online look, and any papers that have come in. Um, Wednesday I've got some teaching in the morning and then I've got another clinic on Wednesday afternoon. Thursday, you know, education is important, so we'll do uh, grand rounds in the morning and patients in the middle of the day and then a special meeting about patients with myositis. Right. Rare diseases we, we try to have inter-hospital meetings. So, so for people with rheumatic disease causing lung disease, we would have a, a, wee, a meeting here every two weeks. For people with muscle disease, I'll go to Prince Alfred Hospital and I'll have a meeting every month and we'll present our patients. So you know, it makes for a kind of interesting week. Yeah, hmm. and lots of, lots of teamwork, lots of uh, ongoing learning and discussion with people to make sure that you're making sane decisions. Uh, so lots of checkups, which I think is very oh, yeah. good. Well, look, the muscle meeting will have, there'll be, um, there'll be rheumatologists there, there'll be the pathologist who's actually looked at the muscle biopsy. Mm. There'll often be the neurologist who might have done an EMG. And, and often there'll be an exercise person because more and more we're learning, even with inflamed muscles, as well as our drugs, They've got to do exercise mm. to regrow any damaged muscle. So yeah, the, 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 those meetings are some of the most fun things. At the end of the meeting, we come up with a plan for each patient. Um, and then, then you know, I, I get the patient back, talk about the meeting, give them their recommendations. And usually they're happy as well that they know that I've been somewhere else, I've presented their case, other doctors have commented, and, and we've got a nice plan for them. Yeah, Patients happy. <laughs> Excellent, and that makes us happy. Mm. Yeah, and I know that you're going hiking soon, so I know that, that you stay fairly active, but in general, do rheumatologists take their own advice? Do they do exercise and do all those things that they recommend? They do. Oh, good. Uh, the, uh, of, um, I can only think of one rheumatologist who battles with his weight, uh-huh. and he tries very hard to keep it down. But um, rheumatologists usually uh, you know, like exercise. Mm. I, I don't think, uh, if you were looking for who cycles, that's a cardiology thing. <laughs> Cardiologists like to push themselves to the... I I don't think rheumatologists do that. Do they run? Do they walk? I think they mostly walk. Mm. I think they walk and they swim. Um, I can think of a couple of runners, but it's it's probably not our thing. I suppose that suits the specialty, the the, um, consistent, ongoing sort mm. of idea. Yeah. Yeah. Again, my predecessor, John, 
he used to believe that for some of our diseases, we needed to kind of chip away at it. Mm. We, we didn't have a cure. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the, say for their rheumatoid, we would trial and error until we got the best drug we could for them. Mm-hmm. And we thought, okay, I've stopped your synovitis, but, but you've lost a lot of muscle condition, so now I need to work on getting a bit stronger. And while you weren't active, you became osteoporotic. What's the best drug for your osteoporosis? It won't interfere with your rheumatoid drugs. And then maybe also we know that cardi- uh, cardiovascular disease has increased in our people who've got rheumatoid. How can we minimise that? How can we make sure that they d- we don't treat their rheumatoid beautifully, only them to die of a heart attack five years earlier than they would have? So it's kind of hot, and, and we chip away at it mm. bit by bit. Yeah. Like GPs do, of course, as well. They incrementally try to improve their patients, and we try to do that too. Yeah, that saying about eating an elephant one piece at a time. Oh, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. so very <laughs> much uh, not too vegetarian friendly that saying uh, no, I don't think no. <laughs> all right so so it's been an excellent interview so far I, I think we've learned so much about rheumatology so let's go out with a, a big bang let's mm-hmm. talk about firstly what's the hardest part of rheumatology well do you know it, it probably is the problem of chronic pain I think mm-hmm. um, if I if I if I saw on my list that a new patient with rheumatoid was coming I think great got half a dozen good drugs a new patient with interstitial lung disease, easy. New patient with myositis, wonderful. You know, a new patient who's seen two other people with chronic pain, you think they're carrying the burden of all these bad things they've been yeah. told. So sometimes I think, oh, it's too late. You know, these awful thoughts are embedded in your brain. I can't get them out. So they would be the ones that we would call kind of heart sink patients. Yeah. Um, so we, every time we see one, you resolve gosh, I mustn't ever make someone like this. Yeah. Or, if, or if that person's already on opioids yeah. and they're still in pain. And I say, that's because the opioids, your body's now used to them. The dose will just get higher and higher and higher. You get more and more side effects. So, but the patient's stuck on them. Yeah. Getting people off opioids, it's hard work. So they're the hardest ones. Right. Uh, having said that, I wouldn't say it's common. If I saw 10 patients in a morning's clinic, a morning in the middle of the day, you know, nine out of ten would have things that I would think of as easy, that okay. could do something good for, they felt better, you felt better. So, whereas one out of ten might be yeah. the ones that you think, oh dear, it's too late, you know, it's all. Yeah, so but, speaking more broadly mm-hmm. than the chronic pain mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, the sort of invasive thoughts, mm-hmm. I, I guess, how, how would you deal with the one out of ten? How would you make yourself not get too down about it? Oh, okay. So in this case, you're thinking about me personally. Yeah. Like, uh, well, yeah, look, everyone's got different approaches to that. Um, I used to do this clinic down in Griffith. It was a country clinic. And I think my predecessor, uh, up above a sort of a beam so that the doctor could see it and the patient couldn't, he put up the sign saying, patient has the disease and I think <laughs> I think he was trying to think um, yes, look it is awful but I mustn't take away yeah. this pain uh, well I guess we try to emphasize the positives mm. um, that you you don't have rheumatoid arthritis in 10 years time you'll still be able to lift your arms up make a fist dress yourself you haven't got a, a damaging disease what you do have is pain that you have to learn to live with and you've been put on various drugs over the years that are bad for you and you, so we always try to give the patient something positive they can do. Mm. I'm a great believer in giving the patient something. So uh, a patient with chronic pain, I'm not going to give them a prescription. But I, on a script pad, I might write advice for exercise or I've got my own little note paper with my name on it and, I'll, and I'd, I'd write the positive things. 
and I'd tell them what I think they need to do, which might be, you know, starting with very simple exercise, yeah. once around the block or something. Um, I, I do that same with all the rare diseases as well. And then I, I'm lucky, I've got a wonderful wife. So sometimes when I get home, Judy would say, you know, not such a good day. And, and she could tell that, you know, I'd brought some of it home with me. Um, and I'd tell her about it. And, and she would say, oh, gee, do you think you can do anything? And I'd say, well, I did this. And she said, oh, that's, guess that's the best you could do. So I would try that. Or we use our Friday meeting where we kind of unload on our <laughs> colleagues. And they say, so sometimes actually they, they say, oh, I've got a worse one than that. And they'll tell me some disaster they've had. And I'll think, oh, that's not so bad then. I don't feel so bad. <laughs> so, yeah. So I don't, probably in more than 25 years of practice, I've probably only lost, you know, three nights sleep. Oh. And, and that would be, and it wouldn't usually be over people that sort of chronic, but it would be people where I thought I'd made a mistake, mm. you know, or I'd done the wrong treatment and they were worse off for it. Those ones are ones that burden you more, I think. Right. And I suppose the, the process to deal with that is the same, you know, going to your colleagues and getting yes. a second opinion, doing your, your ongoing learning. Yes, because right. look, everyone's going to make a mistake. I mean, um, you know, the people who think they won't, they'll make the worst mistakes. Mm. So everyone's going to make a mistake. You've got to then try and make it right as much as you can. And then, you, and then you've got to apologise because that's part of the healing process. And then you've got to tell your colleagues as, as a way of saying, you know, well, you know, they'll feel, you know, they're for the grace of God. So we, we talk about, we, we have an award, which I know you can't see, but this, this, see this ah, foot here? Yes. It, it's an award we give each other when we admit what's the worst mistake we've made. It, it's called the Mea Culpa Award. Cause we, huh. yeah, it's, I think, and, and this here, this is like a little bullet hole mark in a foot. Ah. The idea is that you shot yourself in the foot. Ah, so it's but, a plastic foot with all bits of different anatomy. Yeah, it. <laughs> I, I think for those people who believe the ovary is influenced by pressure on your big toe or something. Okay. But, but we, we do this because we encourage the young doctors to come to our meeting and admit when they've made a mistake. Mm. Hopefully not caused any harm, you know, because there's multi-step. Sometimes you make a mistake and just by luck, no mm. harm's done. Mm. Sometimes you make a mistake and harm's done. So I think I got this award. I think I in, injected a wrist when there were warning signs that the person had an unusual infection. Ah. It had been drained, you know, I'd done that, and nothing grew, but there were other little clues that they probably had tuberculosis of their wrist. Oh, okay. Uh, and I didn't think of it, and I should have thought of it. I injected steroid into it. Uh, now, luckily, they didn't suffer for it. But boy, when I presented it to my colleagues, they said, "How did you do that? How did you? Why didn't you aspirate it again? Why didn't you wait six weeks? Why didn't you have a biopsy?" And they're all good questions, you know. And I and I, and I didn't know the answer. I just thought I did it. So I won the Mayor Culper Award. It's only for a year. Next year it'll be awarded to somebody else. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully. <laughs> of course. All right. So all these uh, little, you know, I don't know what they call little markings for different organs and things. Really sounds like something my yoga teacher would say. You know, she she claims that if you if you bend forward, it's good for your liver meridian or something like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. A full moon will uh, send you crazy. <laughs> I guess humans have always tried to understand disease, haven't they? Mm. I mean, back going back, you know, that the gods are punishing us, or you've done something wrong, mm. or something, um, and because people want to know, like, why did I get sick, doctor? And it's pretty unsatisfactory to say we don't know. Genetics plus environment. <laughs> yes, yes, 
But that sounds a bit like yes. God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we we don't know. It'll be easier when you know when we know more about them. You know, people can come to terms with a genetic abnormality, um, but it won't be simple. Like there'll be some diseases that are easy. Cystic fibrosis, you know, two bad genes, you've got it. But there'll be a lot of other diseases where you're carrying one bad gene, but your body's so clever, you know, so much redundancy built into it that you, your body can cope with it, build around it. We know with when the gene for familial Mediterranean fever was cloned, mm. people thought, well, that's, that's simple. But then we find that there's plenty of people in the Middle East carrying two bad copies of the FMF gene, and there's nothing wrong with them. Mm. So they genetically got FMF, but they don't have a disease. Yeah. So if we knew why they don't, you know, what's the other gene that either controls it or bypasses it, or that, that may open up a whole new treatment. So it's a fascinating field, rheumatology. Oh, yeah. And to add to that note, let's end with what is your opinion on the best part of rheumatology for you? Well, look, I like I like seeing a person when they're young and then getting them over the first few difficult years of their disease and then seeing them grow up. Mm. I've got probably half a dozen patients that I met when they were still at school. You know, there'll be more than that I met when they were school kids. But I met them at school and they had bad lupus, you know. One's this really girl, she must be 30-something now. She's got two children. When I met her, she was in our children's ward, mm. swollen abdomen, big rash, very anemic, incredibly swollen legs, uh, lupus nephritis. You know, it looked pretty grim. And she had two her two parents there. She was a, like one-child policy thing, yeah. so she was their only child. And I, I think they were looking at her and thinking, oh, my poor little girl, her whole life is going to... Mm. But now... She works, she's married, uh, she's got two children, she's on no drugs. Excellent. She, she just had to get through four or five difficult years. So I love seeing her. Like, it's hard to justify seeing her because there's nothing wrong with her. <laughs> so, but she comes along to show me her baby. Oh, you know, that's really, great. That's all she yeah. comes for. And I, and I redo her tests and I say, good, your lupus is still asleep. And I reassure her that her babies don't have lupus. The chance of her babies getting it are very small. That's the best. I think as humans, we love progress. We love positive progress. And, and that's such a great story to demonstrate that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank oh. you so much for the opportunity to drink coffee. Really my <laughs> pleasure. Really my pleasure. Yeah, we've learned so much about rheumatology and all about these great stories that you have and about the upcoming you know, developments that we can look forward to and all about the uh, interesting foot award. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And we'll see all of our listeners on the next episode. Mm-hmm.